place and around the world, if you're listening in online, uh, we're grateful for you and the part that you play in this, this family as well. Many of you, I know, are serving down in our kids' ministry, and we're, we're grateful, grateful for that. If you're visiting with us or if you just haven't been here in a while, we are actually at the tail end of a series. We actually made it to the end of probably one of the longest series we've ever done. It's 14 weeks. Week 14. Uh, that, is a, that is a long, long uh, series. But, man, really, when I think about it, the content of it and the idea behind it really could be a lifetime. What does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like to follow Jesus? We were inspired by a series that Andy Stanley did called 90, where they just took 90 days to follow the life of Jesus from the day he arrived on the Jordan River and uh, as, a, as an adult to the time where he hung on a cross for all of humanity. And we said, what, did it, what would it look like to, to follow Jesus and to ask ourselves each and every week, am I really following Jesus? It's so easy to say I'm a Christian but am I really following Jesus? Because that's what it is. Uh, and the good news for us is that we actually have eyewitness reports of what it looked like to follow Jesus almost 2,000 years ago. And because of that, uh, we have the chance to, to read and to, and to know what the life of Jesus was like, who he was, and what it looked like to follow him. And so what we started off with is that just the one thought that Jesus came to start something brand new brand new. Last week we talked about a new covenant with a new way of relating to God that he said he's not God somewhere out there, not an, a, an angry judge, not a hostile God, but a perfect heavenly father. And to say that people would relate to him in that way, it was uh, something, something brand new. And today we're going to just finish up the kind of the, the last loose ends of that, that thought of something brand new and set us up for Good Friday and Easter, and uh, hopefully you're able to be a part of those as well. So as we start this morning, I just want to ask you this question. What are you known for? What are you known for? Just think for a minute. It's kind of, maybe, it's, maybe that question's a little bit easier to answer. If I say, how would somebody describe you to someone else who's never met you before? How would they describe you? Like, for instance, you know, if I was trying to describe some of you, it's, it's the guy, you know, it's the guy that looks like Jesus with glasses who plays a really great guitar. Who would it be? Chris Stone. It's like the guy with the best mullet at our church who's so good at his work, they actually call him Robo. Uh, anybody know who that might be? Bob DeVries. <laughs> you know, the, the lady who greets on Saturday nights at the door who really loves her dogs and she'll tell you every chance she has how much she loves her dogs? Tina or Don, both will work. <laughs> but they're known for something. People are known for something. What are you known for? How would people describe you to someone else? Last night I asked and they answered, I'm not going to do that this morning. I do not want to know what you think I'm known for. So uh, the, that's the great thing of Saturday night practice. Uh, but this morning I wanted, to, I, wanted to, I wanted you to think about that thought. What are you known for and what do you want to be known for? As we finish up kind of uh, locationally where we are, Jesus, we know that he spent a lot of time up in the northern part of Israel in an area called Galilee. He would travel down to Jerusalem periodically, but every time he's in Jerusalem, there was all kinds of uh, uproar. He would be flipping tables one, one time. Other times they were out just to, to hunt him down to try and kill him. The, the crowds would be incredible around him. Last week we talked about his third Passover visit. Uh, to the city of Jerusalem, and as he came in, they surrounded him, and he was riding on a donkey, and they were shouting out, save us, save us, save us. Last week, we ended with Jesus in an upper room with just his disciples, 
in a spot where nobody would be able to find them, where he could just have the opportunity to, to, to share his kind of his final thoughts with his disciples, even though they didn't realize they were final thoughts. Jesus had performed numerous, numerous miraculous signs. They weren't just miracles just for fun. They were signs pointing to who he was, that he was not just, you know, another great teacher. He was the Messiah they had been waiting for, even though he didn't look like the Messiah they were expecting. He would say things that made some people wonder and scratch their beards. Uh, He had others who would be like, they would hear stuff and they would make them furious because he would say stuff that made him sound like he thought he was equal with God at the very least. And other times he would say stuff that just flat out, like this guy thinks he's God. And they had an issue with that. And uh, if we were there, we may have, the same, have had the same reaction. You know, if the person sitting beside you all of a sudden thinks they're God. If your spouse thinks they're God. You know, if your sibling thinks they're God. Those are sometimes difficult things for us to handle. He would say these, make these statements that made the religious leaders furious. And they tried to kill him. The only problem was they could never find him alone. He was always surrounded by a crowd and they were religious and self-righteous and they're not going to, they're not going to murder somebody in front of a crowd. Oh, they'll murder him all right, but not in front of a bunch of witnesses. And so they kept waiting and waiting for this chance where maybe they could find him somehow away from a crowd. They would try and create opportunities for that to happen. They'd ask Jesus questions that maybe, you know, his answer will turn the crowds away and then we can get them. And John, John was an eyewitness of the events that we're about to talk about. He was there. He wrote about this last supper, this last time hanging out up in the uh, upper room. And he actually adds way more detail than the rest. Matthew wrote about it. Mark wrote about it. He probably heard about it from Peter. Luke, uh, who asked all the eyewitnesses for an accurate account, for a chronological account, he wrote about it. And they all spent some verses on it, but John spends nearly half of his writing, half of his letter on this final night with Jesus. And he goes into great detail. He, he, almost like he wants you to picture it, what it was like to be there, because he was there. So this morning, would you join me as we just picture what it would have been like to sit at a table with Jesus in an upper room, and there's just 12, 12 and him sitting there at a table together. And John writes about it. He writes it this way, John chapter 13, verse 1, he says, before the Passover celebration started, you know, Jesus knew. He's writing this years later. John's an old man at this time that he's writing it. He's probably shared this story hundreds and hundreds of times. And, you know, as he's getting older, people are starting to think, John, you know what? Peter's dead. Paul's dead. Nero killed them both. The rest of the fellows, they're either dead or we're not sure where they are. But, John, you're still here. You know, we thought Jesus was going to be back sooner than later, but it's going to be later. Would you write down all of the stuff? Or would you at least dictate it so we can write it down? That's what we think happened because it was written in Greek. And he sat down one more time just to tell people, okay, here's here's how it went. This is what it looked like that night. It was right before Passover. And I remember Jesus knew. We, We didn't know. But he knew, somehow he knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to the Father. I think about it, I remember that he loved us, his disciples. He loved us during his ministry on earth the whole time. And yet now he loved us right to the very end. Verse 2 says it was time for supper. The devil had already prompted Judas, but you probably know that story. The son of, of Iscariot uh, and to, to betray Jesus. Verse 3 says, but Jesus knew 
Jesus knew something else, too. He knew that the Father had given him authority over everything. Jesus knew he was the most powerful person in the room that night. Not just in the room, but the most powerful person in the world. He knew. He knew. He knew that he'd come from God. He knew that he would return to God. And so, with all that power, with all that authority, with all that amazingness, he did something that just blew our minds. He got up from the table. He took off his robe and he wrapped a towel around himself. And he poured water into a basin. We recognized what he was doing, but we just didn't recognize him being the one doing it. It says, then he began to wash the disciples' feet, our feet. He was drying them with the towel that he had around them. We didn't understand what he was doing. This whole dinner was actually kind of confusing. If you were here last week, we talked about other parts of it that just were so confusing for them. John probably said we would have all looked around kind of speechless, like not sure what to even say. Well, most of us were speechless until he gets to Peter. Then, of course, Peter says, Peter always says, what some of us, maybe most of us, were thinking. Verse 6, when Jesus got to Simon Peter, <laughs> Peter says to him, Lord, Lord. The word means master, owner, the one that I serve. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? That was not a question he was hoping Jesus would answer. He already had his answer. Master, you're the owner. You're the master. You think you're washing my feet? See, foot washing was pretty common um, practice in that day. Uh, we don't do it very often here because it's just disgusting. Um, it just is, even with, even with clean feet. But the thing back then is they wandered around dusty roads, uh, shared with animals, shared with their, their garbage and whatever else. And as they walked through, some, sometimes the sandals, often in bare feet, they would enter into a home. And the thing that would happen is the guests, the person whose home they would enter, if you were a guest there, they would welcome you by washing your feet. Say, hey, come into my home, but wash your feet first. Anybody remember grandma's house? You know, you can come in, but don't walk on that carpet with those dirty feet. Similar, but not everybody did it. And they would say they'd welcome them in and they would say, let me wash your feet. But what they meant was, let my lowest slave wash your feet. Because it was one of these jobs that was the most degrading. It wasn't even for like, it was for the intern slave, the one who was like the lowest of the low on the totem pole. That was their job. Interesting thing in Jewish culture is that it was such a degrading job that a Jewish person could not force another Jewish person to wash their feet. It was, it was against the law for them to do that. It was this thing of, of incredible humility, but it wasn't actually just a Jewish culture. In Roman culture as well, there was a foot washing. In Greek culture, there was foot washing. It's written in history that Caligula, who was just this power-hungry person, he went before the Senate and just to prove his point, made the men of the Senate, the most powerful people in Rome, wash his feet publicly just to simply shame them publicly. It was this thing that was tied to shame. So when they saw Jesus get up and begin to, to assume the position to wash their feet, it was like, you're supposed to be the king. This is, this is, a, this is like, a, why would you do this? This is a shameful position to take. But see, it wasn't really a greeting where they were welcome to the house because they were already eating the meal. So that probably happened already. This is, this is during, during dinner that Jesus gets up. And there's other foot washing customs in Israel that weren't, that weren't uh, just for welcoming guests into your home. It was actually simply to show honor to someone. If you wanted to honor someone, you would wash their feet even if they were already washed. It was simply just a sign of saying, you know what, I esteem you and I honor you. 
And if it was a really special guest, they would break out perfume and they would anoint the feet with perfume, which may remind you of another story where Jesus had someone anoint his feet with perfume. And it was just showing how honored this guest was. They actually, in in the family culture, um, the wives, part of the way they honored their husbands was to wash their feet. Last night I said that would be a great cultural thing to bring back, you know, because my wife wasn't here and she's not here again. And don't you tell her. That's just a test, because somebody keeps going to her and telling her stuff I say about her up here. I will find you. (laughs) Children, children would wash their dad's feet just simply to show that they honored him. So it wasn't always, it just depended on how it was done, whether it was shameful or whether it was honor. But regardless of the type of foot washing that Jesus says, and it doesn't describe which one it was, it could have been either, it could have been something brand new, but Peter was having none of it either way. He says in verse 6, Master, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? John's like, I remember him. Peter's like, no, no. You know, um, and Jesus replied to him, you don't understand what I'm doing, but someday you will. And Peter's like, no, I don't understand, but it doesn't matter. I'm not having you wash my feet. You will never, ever wash my feet, says wishy-washy Peter. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. And there's where Peter finally concedes. He's like, well, you know, I don't, I don't want you to wash my feet, but I want to belong to you. I've always wanted to belong with you, but I don't want you to wash my feet, but, but I want to belong. And so because I want to belong, Jesus, I'll let you wash my feet. And while you're at it, you could wash my hands. You could wash my head too, he says. And Jesus is like, it's not a sponge bath, Peter. It's just a sign of honor. I know, you should read your Bible. It's incredible stuff in there. See, Jesus knew. He said it. He knew. He knew what he wanted them to understand in this final meal together. He was just setting the table for what was to happen next. Verse 12, a few verses later, after washing their feet, Jesus gets up and puts on the robe again. He sits down and he asks them, do you understand? Well, Peter doesn't understand, but the rest of you, do you understand? Do you understand what I was doing? At that table, they just all kind of look like, I don't know, know, we don't understand. We've never seen this before. We don't understand half of what you say. We definitely don't understand the stuff you're saying tonight. We We don't understand. And he says this in verse 13. I believe this is not just for them, but for us as well. He says, you you call me. You use words. You use terms. You address me in a certain way. You refer to me in a certain way. It's what he's saying. You call me. You call me these words, teacher. You call me the one that you follow. That's what you call me. You call me Lord. You call me the owner and the one you obey. Those are the words you call me. He said, and so, and he says, you are right because that's who I am. I am the one you follow and I am the one that you obey. And he says to them next, he says, and since I, since I the one who you follow and who you obey, your Lord and your teacher, since I've washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to what? An example to follow. Oh, we got a different verse there. I've given you an example to follow. That's okay. Do as I have done to you. I have given you an example to follow. You say the words that I follow you and I obey, but he's like, I'm giving you an example to follow, and I'm going to give you something to obey, an example of what it looks like or what it will look like, what it will look like to follow me. So as they're still sitting at the table, they're like trying to process this, you know, what did what Jesus meant? Jesus, all of a sudden, his demeanor changes. He's like, this is what it's going to look like to follow me. And then all of a sudden, he just gets super somber. 
He looks around the table, and I can just picture him looking in each one of their eyes. One of you, one of my best friends, one of the 12 who've been around me this whole time, one of, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to betray me. And fellas are all looking around like, what, what do you mean? Like, he, he looked at me a little longer. Is it me? Is it me? Who, who is it? Who would, seriously, who would betray him? And Peter sits by John and is like, John, you're closest to Jesus. You ask him. Ask him. John's like, leans over and says, Jesus, who is it? Jesus whispers in his ear, I'll tell you, don't tell the fellas, but it's whoever I give this piece of bread to. Gives a piece of bread to Judas, and then Judas is, all of a sudden, Judas gets up and leaves the room. Well, the rest of them just looking like, where's Judas going? You know, oh, well, he probably has to go pay for the meal or something. He's, gotta go, he's probably got to go pay for something, and Judas is gone. Like, everything's so confusing tonight. We, we just don't know what's going on, but none of them know what's about to happen except for Jesus and John. And he writes about that moment, says, this is, this is what happened after that. John 13, verse 31. As soon as Judas left the room, as soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory, and God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will give his own glory to the Son, and he will do so at once. Like, Jesus, we don't know what you're talking about. He's like, what do you mean glory? And, and, and what do you mean, we, you know, it's, it's um, that the time has come. And, and then he says it this way in verse 32. Dear children, dear children, the people that I love, I'm only going to be with you a little longer. As I told the Jewish leaders, you'll search for me, but you can't come where I'm going. He says to them, I'm only going to be with you a little bit longer. And like, what do you... Jesus, tomorrow you're going to be like the king and we're going to follow you in and the crowds are going to surround us and we're going to take over Rome. It's going to be awesome. He's like, actually, no, it's not going to go like that. I'm only going to be with you for a little while longer. Where I'm going is uh, you can't come where I'm going. In verse 34, but he says, so now, because of that, because I'm only with you for a short time, now I'm giving you a new commandment. See, he had already given them an example to follow. But now he was giving them a new commandment. And we talked about it last week. He had given them a new covenant, a new covenant at this meal, and now a new example and a new, um, a new commandment. Everything, you know, all this brand new, all happening so quickly for them. And when, you know, when he would have said, I'm, I'm going to give you a new commandment, they, as much as it's been confusing for them so far, even at this moment, they would have probably thought, wait, Jesus, you can't give new commandments. You know, you're not supposed to wash people's feet, but you're definitely not supposed to make up new commandments. You know, only God, only God can give new commandments. We already have a whole bunch of commandments. See, they may have remembered that this wasn't actually the first time where Jesus had talked about giving new commandments. About 10 months earlier, Jesus was on a, uh, out teaching, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two groups of people, one was more political, one was very religious. Both of them hated Jesus and were jealous of him because of the crowds. They got together and they said, once and for all, let's trick this guy, let's finish him off. And they, they got together, which they rarely did, to, um, to, to try and overthrow Jesus and the crowd. And so they, they sent one of their guys out to Jesus to ask him a question. Hey, Jesus, you know, Rome says we should pay taxes. What do you think? Knowing that if Jesus says pay taxes, the crowds are going to leave him because nobody wants that kind of advice uh, as well. Uh, never mind. And then, uh, it, it, then the next thing they said, well, if he doesn't say pay taxes, well, then Rome will take him out. So, so we're good. 
Jesus answers with this incredible answer, and the crowd, you know, they, they all, the, the guys leave. And then they're like, it says the Sadducees couldn't, couldn't answer, so the Pharisees send somebody. And they're like, go ask him. Well, so the, the Sadducees ask him this question about eternity and who's going to be your wife in heaven, and he sends back this answer, and they're like, oh, foiled again. And so they, they get together, and it says in, in Matthew, he wrote it in Matthew 22, he says, verse 34, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. And one of them, who was an expert in religious law, so they got their ringer, the lawyer, the one who knew it inside and out, knew the law inside and out, all 613 laws, tried to trap Jesus with a question. Can you picture it? There they go, and sitting in the crowd, and Jesus is teaching, and the question and answer session at the end, and you know, the, the lawyer raises his hand and says, uh, Jesus, you know, teacher, he says to them, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus replied with what they all knew was the most important commandment. They had learned it in Sunday school all their lives, that the most important commandment was, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the lawyer had his next question ready, but Jesus didn't stop. And he says, and the second is like it. And the lawyer's probably thinking, no, 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 and. No, no, that, I'm supposed to ask the next question. And Jesus says, no, there's two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there's something else that's just as important. Just as important. You could switch the order. They're that similar. Love your neighbor as yourself. No one had ever really put these two thoughts together. And he says, you know what? Really, the entire law, all 613 commands hang on those two. They're all covered by those two. If you read something in the Old Testament, you're like, what does it mean by that? It all goes back to this, where it was either love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus was saying those two are tied together. You can't say, I love the Lord, and treat people like garbage. You can't, you can't do that. That's not loving the Lord. In our house, we have two rules. My kids, if you ask them, what are the family rules, they'll tell you. The rules are be safe, have fun in that order. Be safe, have fun in that order. And so when they go to your houses sometimes and your kids want to do crazy stuff with them and say, hey, you know what? We got this cool snowmobile. We're going to take the snowmobile and drive across a creek in the middle of the summer. You win? My kids come and say, dad, we told them that our rules are be safe and have fun. I'm like, yes. You know, it's getting through to them, right? I, the, the thing is, those two commands kind of cover all the rest. I don't have to have a rule that says, son, the house rules are thou shalt not take a snowmobile across a creek in the middle of the summer. That's one of our house rules. You know, why, having these two rules that cover lots of others, what it does is it, 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 it takes out the room for loopholes. See, because the, the, the teachers of religious law, the religious leaders, they were, they were expert at, at finding loopholes. And so they sent after, later on, they sent another lawyer over to Jesus and said, <laughs> he says to Jesus, hey, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus says, well, hey, well, what's the greatest commandment? And of course, he knows it. So the lawyer says to him, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says to him, and love your neighbor as yourself. I was at your last lesson. And Jesus is like, well, that's great. Well, then go and do that. And he says, but I have a question for you. Who is my neighbor? Is it the ones who live on the left side and the right side of me? Or does it include the ones who live across the street from me? Which neighbors do I have to love like this? Looking for a loophole. And Jesus tells him the story of the Good Samaritan and basically says, it does, there's no who. It's if you meet someone who has a need that you can meet, that's your neighbor. Whoever you meet who has a need that you can meet, that is your neighbor. 
And if it wasn't clear to them then, Jesus was about to make it abundantly clear to the 12, or now 11, listening in the room. So back in the upper room, he says to them, verse 13, verse 34, uh, now I'm giving you a new commandment, because I can, because I'm God, and you're about to find that out. He says, here's my commandment. One, just one, love each other as I have loved you. You should love each other. I have loved, so you should love. I'm not adding commandment number 614. I'm not, I'm not adding to the commandments. I'm replacing all of them with one. One is so much easier to remember. One is so much easier to remember. Love each other just as? He remembered it just that quick. Love each other just? I have loved you. Love each other just as I have loved you. Far less complicated, but much more demanding. They didn't have to memorize all 613 laws and try and keep them. There was just one. And it wasn't this idea that you could, you know, hey, I want you to love God. I just want you to love God. I love Jesus. He's like, I want you to love me by loving other people. That's my commandment. It's no longer about showing your love by going to church or by singing songs on, you know, on stage or, or whatever it is. It's about loving me by loving other people. They'll see it by loving others. Why? Because love's not a feeling. Love has to be demonstrated. It's the old story of the old couple who's uh, sitting together and the, the wife says to the husband, honey, how come you don't tell me that you love me anymore? And he says, I told you when I married you. If anything changes, I'll let you know. <laughs> That's not love, right? Because love's got to be shown. It's got to be demonstrated in order for it to be seen. And where there's lots of rules there's lots of loopholes. And so when they had the Ten Commandments that now turned into 613, there was always the in-between spots of, well, it doesn't exactly say. Any parent knows this. You give your, parent, you give your child a, a, an instruction, then you come and check up on them, and you find that they did not do what you asked. And you, you ask them, why didn't you do what I asked? And they tell you they've got a great answer for it. It's like, well, you didn't say exactly where I couldn't hit my brother. <laughs> yeah, I thought you can't hit your brother it covers it, you know, or, you know, well, your teenager's like, well, you know, I, I was home at night, you know, it was still night when I got home. I'm like, yeah, but you know, you were supposed to be at home a certain time. Oh, well, you didn't say exactly what time. The exactly's. And, and, and what happened with the religious people, they would look for the exactly's. And it happens today. Mark, the Bible doesn't really say anything exactly about weed. Our government says I can, so can I? You know, it doesn't say exactly how many is too many. I think I can handle 23 before I'm tipsy. It doesn't say exactly. What is that? It's just simply looking for loopholes in the rules. And Andy shared it this way. It's just brilliant what Jesus does. Because when he gives one rule, there's no in-between. There is no room for any loopholes in this one command. See, in the Old Testament, the question was this. What does, what does the law require of me? That's all they had to ask. You know, how do I treat people? Well, what does the law require of me? I don't like my wife. I'm just going to write her a certificate of divorce. I, you know, I, I don't like my neighbor. Ah, I'm like this. I don't want to give my parents, you know, I don't want to support them in their old age. I'll just tell them that, well, what I was going to give to you, I actually gave to God, so I can't give it to you anymore. He says, there's, there's, he says that the question was, what does the law require of me? But he says in the New Testament, here's the question. What does love require of me? What does love require of me? 
Because it might be difficult for us to kind of navigate all the other questions. We're like, well, what does it say exactly? What does it say exactly? But when we ask yourself, what does love require of me? There's very little confusion. And so Jesus said to them, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. Not because they deserve it. Not because they love you back. Just love people. Love one another because I love you. Just do it in response to me. There was a whole lot of commands in the New Testament, but they're not really commands when you read into them even further. This word one another happens over and over and over again. And what do they do? Paul says, he gives them all these commands about how they are to treat one another, but they all come back to one command. This is how you love one another. Because in ours, like, well, okay, I, I have feelings of love for people. I, I love everybody. Paul's like, that's not how this works. He says, this is, this is what it looks like. Here's the descriptors. To the Romans, he wrote this, Romans 12, 6, be kindly affectionate to one another. Same words. This is how you love one another. Be kindly affectionate to one another. Verse 16 of the same chapter, be of the same mind to, toward one another. Be of the same mind. Be at peace with one another. How many marriages would be so much better if we could just do that one? Be on the same page with one another. Find a way to get there. 1 Corinthians 12, he writes to Corinthians, have the same care for one another. Galatians, he says to them, through love, serve one another. Not just have feelings of love, serve one another. Ephesians 4 verse 2, with lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, with lots of patience, support one another in love saying, you know, I think sometimes God puts annoying people in our church just to help us with this. They all go to Saturday night, but (laughs) that idea, you know, of, oh, how much patience, how much patience has he not shown us? He says, and that's, that's what he says, and over and over, Ephesians 4, you'll see, you know, one of the things is be, be, you know, be kind to one another. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another tender-hearted to one another, forgiving one another. Yeah, but that's hard. Paul, I don't want to do it just because you said. He's like, it's not because I said. He's like, the reason you should forgive one another is even as God in Christ forgave you. Forgive one another because you've been forgiven. Why should we do this, Paul? Because God did it for you. And that night at that table, he's like, I've given you an example of how to serve one another the way that I've served you. I want you to love one another the way that I love you. And he loved each one of us, and it's why we should love one another. And he says, this new command, this is the new command. This is all I want you to do. Just love each other the way that I love you. And it's interesting because they almost missed the moment. As Jesus was saying to them, to the disciples that night, he's like, you can't go where I'm going, fellas. I'm only going to be with you a short time. So now here's the command I'm giving you. Love one another. Love one another. Verse 35 says, your love for one another, it'll prove to the world that you're my disciples. Can you just picture that moment? Here's the big thought, everyone. Love one another, fellas, the way that I've loved you. The whole world, it's going to be proof to the world that you're my disciples. And then Peter raises his hand. Lord, where are you going? It's like, Peter. Back it up. Beep, beep, beep. Back it up. You're about to miss the greatest moment. Don't worry about where I'm going or whether you can come with me. This is the one thing I'm calling you to do. And it is the one thing that I believe, if you forget everything else this morning, don't miss this moment. Don't miss this moment. I'm just going to walk to the back just to make sure that nobody misses this moment. Because what does he say? 
The question we've been asking ourselves this whole time, am I truly following Jesus? What does it look like to truly follow Jesus? Am I following Jesus? He answers it with this one thought. He says, the proof that you're following Jesus, if you need proof, if you're wondering, am I really following Jesus? It's not this abstract thought. He says, the proof is this. The proof is in how you love one another. It's not in what I believe about things. It's not in what I say about things. It's do I love one another? Really? The good news is that the first Jesus followers actually did what Jesus said. They went out and they loved people. They loved their enemies. They loved the Roman enemies. And that message began to spread. And because of their love, people wanted in. They wanted into this new movement. We don't, a man rose from the dead, you say? We're not sure about that yet. But the way you love, we want to be in. We want to be around people like you. And many of them began to put their faith in Jesus as Savior. And their message and their, their, their movement spread like wildfire. Even the Romans, even the Romans who, would, who had been torturing them in one moment, centurions came to become followers of Jesus because of the way that these people loved. Years later, there was a man named Tertullian. Tertullian, it's, they're not exactly sure of his origin, but they believe that he was the son of a Roman centurion. They know he was Roman. They think he was the son of a Roman centurion. He was, an, uh, he was an avid writer. And Tertullian wrote in 197 AD. So 150 years later, after these first Jesus followers started out, he wrote these words. It's mainly the deeds of noble love that lead many to put a new brand on us because he had become a follower of Jesus. He said this, they say, see how they love one another? So we know that at least... You know, 150 years later, that idea of loving one another, fulfilling that one command of Jesus was still happening. It was a command for the early church and it was a command for the, you know, the, the young church, but it's a command for the church today, a commandment for the church today. See, he didn't give you the 10 commandments to try and keep them. We learned last couple of weeks ago, they were simply to show us that we need a him. We need a savior. And then he said, once you're in relationship with me, you know how I've loved you, go and love other people. And so the question this morning is, how are you doing with that? How are you really doing with that? How am I really doing with that? You can ask me. How am I really doing with that? Am I actually following Jesus? As I think about it, you know, it's easy sometimes to just play guitar. You know, ah, I don't have to do that stuff. I'm the pastor, you know. <laughs> I'm already good with God. How do I love people, really love people? Because that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I was reminded of this quote from when I was a kid. John Hagee said it, you know, if you were on trial for being a Christian, if you were on trial for being a Jesus follower, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would there be enough of this proof that, wow, look at, yeah, the way they love people, that is, <laughs> that is the evidence that they are followers of Jesus, not how good they talk, not, not how you know, things, whatever. It's, it's, do they love people? So we started with this and we end with it. What are you known for? What are you really known for? What am I known for? What would you want to be known for? Not what we believe, not as a church. We don't want to be, hey, this is what we believe or this is what we're against or whatever. Not, not what we claim to believe, but did we live out Jesus' command? How did I demonstrate loving others in my relationships? Am I loving others? In my marriage, am I loving uh, others? Am I, in, in my parenting, am I loving and serving my kids? In, in, in my work, in my, where, into the people that I don't even know. Are we loving people because Jesus loved us?
close with this thought. In the upper room that night, they might have wondered, you know, about the new foot washing example they had just watched. They might have wondered about this new covenant in Jesus' blood that we talked about last week. They might have wondered about this new commandment and like, wow, you know, love others as, as I have loved you. But they didn't have much time to wonder about it because Jesus simply said to them, listen, it's time to go. You're about to witness the greatest expression of love the world has ever seen. That night they would go out and they would watch as their Savior was betrayed by Judas. Judas led the army right to Jesus when the crowd wasn't around. They watched as he was arrested. They watched from a distance as he was on a, a, you know, a fake trial. And they watched as their dear friend was hung on a cross. Farthest thing from their mind. And heard the words as he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I, no one takes my life. I'm laying it down for you. Laying it down for you. Paul, Paul, a man who hated Jesus and hated Christians, later on in life became a follower of him. Life transformed, so transformed, wrote these words to the Romans. And I'll leave you with these thoughts. When we, who's we? You, me. When we were utterly helpless, not when we had kind of gotten ourselves in a little bit of a mess, when we were utterly helpless, when we realized that we were sinners, <laughs> that we could not save ourselves, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time, and he died for us. He died for me. He died for you, the sinners. Verse 7, now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us. God demonstrated his love for us. He didn't just say, I love you. He showed it in an incredible way by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. He didn't wait for us to get it all right. He did it for us. Verse 9, since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. We talked about how hell is real. And that we're on a pathway there from the day we're born unless someone intervenes, unless someone saves us from that destination. And he says that is what he has saved us from. We do not need to fear God's condemnation. Verse 10, for since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. And verse 11, he ends with this. So now, now, not somewhere down the road, not, you know, in eternity, right now, as Jesus' followers, you can rejoice in the wonderful new relationship with God that you have because of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has made us, you, me, friends with God. Wow, what a powerful thought. If as you hear, read those words, if something lights up on the inside, it's like, oh, Jesus, I am so thankful that that's what you did for me. You understand the gospel. You understand the good news. But there may be those of you sitting here this morning and you're just like, that hasn't happened yet. You know, you, you, you don't, you, you, maybe you sit in church and you just feel con incredibly guilty about sin. Maybe it's like you just feel like, oh, God must be angry at me or whatever. Can I tell you that he, he, he loves you? He doesn't want you living in that life. It's why he sent his son to say, hey, come, come and follow me. But that invitation wasn't just for those disciples that day. It's for you as well. Say, so I'll leave life, the life that I've lived, being my master, being in control of my life, and everything that led to, God, I, I, I ask for your forgiveness for that, and I'll take up your invitation to come and follow you. You can do that today. 
That doesn't require a sinner's prayer where you just say some things about Jesus and about you. It's way bigger than that. It's simply saying, I trust the rest of my life to your hands, and I trust my eternity to what you did on a cross for me. Pray, Father, thank you for this morning. And Jesus, thank you for your words, the words of life, <laughs> the words that have changed my life. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice, that it is it's so powerful then, so powerful today, that it's still changing our lives. Thank you, thank you, thank you for that. Thank you for the stories we hear of friends from all over the world. It wasn't just here, it wasn't just there, but that you did truly come for the world, for the world. Lord, I just pray for those this morning who are here. I just know and feel on the inside that you're talking to them. God, I just pray for them that you give them the courage to simply reach out and put their lives in your hands, to simply trust you. We don't have it all figured out yet, but that we would trust you to be our salvation, to be our hope, to be our life, to be our forgiveness, to be our freedom, to be our savior, and to be our friend. Wow. Thank you for those words. Thank you for the truth of them. Lord, help us this week as we go out to see people, as you really see them, incredibly valuable, but maybe not in relationship with you. Lord, for the opportunities we have to invite people. Maybe it's invite them to church. Maybe it's invite them to know you. But God, I pray that we would go out this week as your followers, shining your light to this world, that you uh, may be glorified in and through all of it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.